Her eyes were red, and her teeth were rotting. Gordon MacDonald shared a story about visiting a small group of men and women in an AA chapter, Alcoholics Anonymous. MacDonald said he visited the group because he had so many friends who were recovering alcoholics that he wanted to see for himself what they were talking about. And here's what he found. He writes this. He says, one morning, Kathy, I guessed her age at 35, joined us for the first time. One look at her face caused me to conclude that she must have been Hollywood beautiful at 21. Now her face was swollen, her eyes were red, her teeth were rotting. Her hair looked unwashed, uncombed for who knows how long. She said, I've been in five states in the past month. I've slept under bridges on several nights. I've been arrested, I've been assaulted, I've been robbed. Now she's weeping. I don't know how to do. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore. But I can't stop drinking, she said through her sobs. I can't stop. I can't. Next to Kathy was a rather large woman named Marilyn who had been sober for more than 12 years. She reached with both arms toward Kathy and pulled her close, so close that Kathy's face was pressed to Marilyn's ample breast. I was close enough to hear Marilyn speaking quietly into Kathy's ear. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. You hear me? Keep on coming. And then Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. MacDonald writes, I was awestruck. The simple words, the affection, the tenderness, how like Jesus. If church could be more like that, the more pain you have suffered, the more abuse you've experienced, the more tears you've shed, the more that you've failed God and other people and failed yourself, Jesus only becomes more beautiful. The sympathy of Jesus to damaged and bruised sinners like us. It's beyond calculation. And so the author of this New Testament letter to Hebrews, which we've been working through, is, is writing to a group of Jewish followers of Jesus who also knew suffering tremendously well. They had been bruised. They had been beaten. They had been rejected by their families, kicked out of their synagogues, despised by the pagans. They had no one in their corner. They knew pain. They knew abuse. And of all the qualities about Jesus that the author to Hebrews most highlights, above all others, he points to the sympathy. The sympathy of Jesus toward us. We're going to read from Hebrews 3, 4, and, and 5. Just, just a few verses in each chapter just to get a sense for how, how this theme is developed through the center part of this letter. This is beginning in Hebrews 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then in chapter 5, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and with tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. What do we see here? First, we see an honesty, an incredible, unusual honesty about our human weakness. Uh, we read here, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, there is an openness here about weakness, you know. And, and it's interesting because the gospel really gives a third way, different from both the world and different from religion, when it comes to talking about our particular weaknesses that we have as human beings. Um, you know, the world's way is to embrace our weaknesses as, as perfectly natural, normal things, as if we're not fallen. Um, and, 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 and so you go ahead and you supersize the meal, you order, you order the second Megarita, you find some Russian girl online, you take another hit. If it feels good, it's good. Uh, it's kind of the world's uh, hedonistic approach. But that doesn't really help you when you realize you've developed a food addiction or when your doctor tells you you have cirrhosis of the liver, or when you've just woken up with somebody and you can't remember their name. It doesn't work when, you know, you've just sabotaged another relationship, or when your boss sees what you've been looking at on the company laptop. It doesn't work when your habit of indulging your selfish desires makes you no longer capable of loving a spouse, or receiving love from a spouse, or loving your children as you ought. Um, it, it ends up, it sabotages us. The word here is, is it refers to sin's deceitfulness. Sin is always a liar. It promises us, us relief. You'll get numb. You'll feel good. You'll feel desirable. You'll feel comforted. Uh, you know, but, but it, it, you'll feel like you have intimacy. You'll feel desirable. And yet, what sin always brings us instead, it promises those things. But two hours later, those things aren't there. Um, because sin is a liar. It's deceitful, we read here. Uh, uh, and so it leads to bondage and death. Uh, the world's way of, of hedonistically embracing our weaknesses as natural and healthy, it doesn't work out in the long run. And yet religion has a different approach. Religion says you've got to deny your weakness. You've got to be one of the strong people. Get it together. Be put together. You know, you've got to, to uh, um, keep your, your, your weaknesses a shameful secret that you tell no one about because if they knew they would reject you, they'd be horrified because you wouldn't want to be one of the good, clean, righteous, obedient people. You're one of the, the weak people who need fixing or hiding or you're one of those people. You know, religion promises that if you just hide your weakness and pretend that you've got it together, that you'll become one of the good people. You'll be better than other people. At least other religious people will think that you're better than other people. But what religion actually delivers, because it makes you hide your weaknesses, is it brings you incredible loneliness that's even greater than what you had before because the real you which is the weak you can never be seen and because it can never be seen it can never be loved whatever you know mask you're wearing is a good religious person will be loved but that mask is not real 
you are not known. You are not seen and you are therefore not loved and celebrated as a human being because religion is telling you you have to hide your weakness. If the world says embrace your weaknesses and religion says to deny your weaknesses, the gospel gives us a third option. And that's the option of being honest about our weaknesses. Um, and this is coming from somebody who's been pretty honest about his weaknesses. Uh, you know, uh, the gospel creates this emotionally healthy place in which we can be flawed and loved. Loved by God and loved by each other who are then bound to encourage one another. Uh, you know, uh, there's no denial about weakness here. You know, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We're not denying it. We're not hiding it. We're not faking it. We're not celebrating it. We're just being honest that we have weaknesses. Uh, for one person, it might be food. For another, it might be drink. For another, it might be sexual. For another, it might be laziness. For another, it might be that critical edge that makes them constantly feel a need to evaluate other people, and they just are trying to turn the volume down on that all the time. For others, it might be laziness or might be a tendency to get defensive when criticized. We all have our weaknesses, and the gospel lets us be honest about them, uh, honest that they're there. Don't need to hide it. Uh, we could be accepted by God in our flawed state because the gospel says we are all 50,000 times more sinful than we realized and 100,000 times more loved than we could ever imagine or dream because our acceptance by God is no longer based on our performance. Jesus has purchased it for us, and so we don't have to deny our weaknesses. We can be honest about admitting it, um, honest about our defects, the effects of the fall, our over-desires that aren't helpful, and yet they're part of our story. Uh, and because the gospel gives us this freedom to own our weaknesses honestly, it also creates a community when a church, when a group of followers of Jesus get the gospel, and we all realize we're all the worst, most, the biggest sinner in the room, and yet we're radically loved and secure and safe, and we have Jesus' resume, and nothing we're going to do is going to embellish that resume because we have the righteousness of Christ credited to us, then we can be a community of flawed, broken, sinful people loving each other and reminding each other of how much Jesus loves and favors sinners who trust him. Only grace can open up that kind of reality and enable us to encourage one another daily as we read here. So we see an incredible honesty about weakness that no other religion or philosophy in human history has really had. We also see a caution about hardness, hardness of heart. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Um, it's a call to submission, which can honestly rub a lot of us the wrong way because all of our experience of submission is in a fallen world with other sinners and so you've got the controlling pastor or the abusive parent or or the the emotionally insecure boss who who takes all the credit and gives all the blame uh you know you've got the ruthless dictator or the harsh drill sergeant because any submission relationship that we're in in this life is under a sinner who's selfish by nature and isn't necessarily like jesus where he takes a bullet for us. Um, and so submission can rub us the wrong way, and so we can become distrustful or suspicious even of God and, and of what he says in, in Scripture because we become triggered by the abusive spouse or the controlling pastor or the insecure boss. And um, 
And the risk there is that we develop what's called here a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And maybe we don't intend it to happen, but we drift and we realize that our relationship with God is not where it needs to be. It's not where we want it to be, that we've become hardened. And that's the, the language here. Encourage one another daily so that, you may, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. To become hardened is a very easy and natural in a fallen way response to pain and to suffering. And we experience pain and suffering. We can let our hearts become calcified on the outside. Like, I'm never going to let anybody break my heart again. I'm just going to turn it into a nice, hardened rock. And, and it's a sad thing. But um, I was reading, Carissa Smith uh, has uh, written about her own experience as a mother of, of young children. And she writes this. She says, my four-month-old daughter and I took a trip to the library. She babbled softly as I browsed through the books, and as we walked, I hold a, heard an older man in the library say gruffly, tell that kid to shut up or I will. Angrily, I responded, I am very sorry for whatever in your life caused you to be so disturbed by a happy baby, but I will not tell my baby to shut up, and I will not let you do so either. She writes, I braced myself, expecting an outburst from him. Instead, he looked down. He took a deep breath, and he said softly, I apologize. He looked up at me with tears in his eyes. We remained silent. Finally, he looked at my daughter. She smiled at him. She happily kicked her arms and legs. He wiped his eyes, and he said slowly, My son died when he was two months old. She writes, I moved to sit in the chair next to him. He went on to explain that his son died from SIDS over 50 years ago. He described how his anger grew, leading to a failed marriage and to isolation. I asked him to tell me about his son, and as he did so, he smiled back and forth with my daughter. Eventually, he asked to hold her. As he held her, his shoulders relaxed. Then he briefly laid his cheek on her head, and he returned her to me, with a heartfelt thank you. I thanked him for sharing his story, and he quickly departed. See, suffering can harden us if we let it, and that hardness can destroy any relationship that God gives us. It can rob our hearts of joy, and it can harden us toward God himself. There can be a vertical dimension. There is a vertical dimension to hardness, a hardness even toward God. Uh, and so we read here, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened. The context here, the author to Hebrews throughout these passages has been talking about the passage we read earlier from Numbers uh, in the Mosaic Law when the Israelites had, had scouted ahead to the promised land and, and two of the scouts came back and said, God's going to give it to us. He's promised. And the other ones all said, no, there are giants in the land, and if we go there, we're all going to die. And so the Israelites then believed what the larger group of, of scouts said, and, and, and then God was displeased. We, we read in Numbers 14, God says to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How, will they how long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? You see, hardness involves a contempt for God. 
and an unwillingness to believe him, an unwillingness to trust him and his goodness toward us. It, it prioritizes all those human voices out there telling us, don't go into the promised land, they're dangerous, they're, they're giants, you're going to die, instead of what God himself promises us. They believe the words of the eyewitnesses instead of believing the word of God who had promised them that they would take the land and that they would flourish there. See, we all make decisions all day, every day. And in a, to a big measure, we are the product of, of one decision after another to take this path and not that path or that path. And, 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 and we have to live with the consequences of our decisions. The Israelites had to. God actually did forgive them. He did absolve them of their guilt. But their hardness of heart was so severe that he also disciplined them, forgiving them and yet promising that none of them who had believed the lying spies, none of them would ever enter the promised land. They would wander the desert the rest of their lives. Um, this is, has something to say to us. Um, I have to always ask myself, am I really listening to God's voice? Am I really open to whatever he wants to tell me? Uh, I, I, am I trusting his word, whatever it says? Or, or am I just doing what humans tell me to do? Uh, am I living in fear of God or fear of humanity? Um, don't think it can't happen to you. If it could happen to the Israelites, and they were the only people on earth at that time serving and following the Lord, if it can happen to them, it can happen to any of us. The Israelites had, had believed the words of their fellow Israelites over the word of God. And, and the Hebrews here that this letter is addressed to, they were being tempted by the same thing. Now realize, they weren't being tempted to go off and live like pagans. They were being tempted to go back and do their self-righteous religion thing because it's their Jewish friends and family members and, and, and colleagues and, and support structure that has rejected them for following Jesus. And they are being tempted to go back to the harshest kind of human, man-made, religious legalism with a billion rules around every biblical principle. And because they were being tempted to do what people want them to do instead of what God wants them to do. So what about you? We have to ask ourselves the question, do I have a hardened heart or do I have a heart that's tender toward God? Do I have a heart that is bruised and is hurting and wounded? And if it's bruised and hurting and wounded, how am I responding? Am I taking those bruises to Jesus, our gentle Savior, who, who, who delights in us, who is our advocate, who looks upon you with such sympathy? Or, or am I instead hardening my heart so that no one can puncture it again, so that I can become a cage in my, encaged by my own anger? Uh, is, do I have a calloused heart? Am I grumbling and complaining against God like the Israelites? Am I repenting as a daily lifestyle? Am I asking people to forgive me regularly because we sin against each other regularly, because we, we don't love each other to the degree that we ought to? We don't even understand each other to the degree that we ought to, and, and we're responsible for that. And so we should always be asking forgiveness from people because we're constantly letting people down in one way or the other, uh, intentionally and unintentionally. Am I, am I humbling myself? Am I asking God to forgive me when I realize that I'm not trusting him? Would those who know me well describe me as somebody who loves Jesus or is just a religious person? Am I hardened toward God? Now, at this point, someone's probably going to think, okay, Greg, you talk about how it's all grace, 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 but, but now you've just dropped the other shoe with a, a kind of one-size-fits-all moral straitjacket. Um, and... and I don't think that's, that's fair. 
because um, yes, the Bible does put limitations on how we choose to live our lives. God tells us what he wants from us, and, and, and he doesn't always give us a billion details about that, but he, he charts out what the Bible calls a path for us to walk in in which we can flourish. And, and that does mean limitations, but, but the reason it's not a moral straitjacket is because they're not arbitrary limitations. They're the limitations that actually align with our nature as we were created by God. They're the things that actually enable us to flourish. They're the limitations, like I've talked about, you know, a fish that wants to be free from the limitation of, of the water in the fish tank, it, it jumps out and then it, it dies because those limitations were what enabled the fish to thrive because a fish's nature is that it lives with the limitation of always being in water. Um, and these limitations that Scripture gives us actually enable us to have a freedom that we never would have had otherwise. I mean, some of you have been... Some of you, your mom made you play the piano from age three, and you had to, to sit down at your piano. You had a piano in your house, and you had to play it for two hours every single day because your mother was determined that you were going to learn to play the piano. Now, was that limitations? Yes. Did you always like it? No. But what did that do but gave you the freedom to be able to sit down at a Steinway and sight-read any piece of music and create beautiful melodies all by yourself because you have a freedom that you never would have had were it not for limitations that lined up with your nature. Some of you are runners, and you know you, you hit the pavement, you know, three, four, five days a week, some of you six, seven days a week, and, and you're pounding your body and doing things that your body doesn't necessarily always feel like doing, and yet what you gain of that is the freedom to run a marathon and have a good time. And it gives you a freedom you never thought you would have had. The, the biblical guidelines here are not arbitrary. They reflect the good nature in which God created us and his design for humanity and actually enables us to be more free. The author to Hebrews here centers this on the question of trust. Do we trust God? Because if we don't trust God, if we don't find him trustworthy, then we're not going to obey him, not with a joyful heart, not willingly. So what do we see here? We see an honesty about weakness that other religions do not have. We see a caution about hardness. Uh, in response to suffering, don't let your heart become hard. Encourage each other with the love of God so that it can stay tender and open toward God and toward his will and toward his voice. And yet we also see something tremendously beautiful because the only way we're going to do what God wants is if we actually trust him. And the only way we're going to trust him is, is if we actually find him trustworthy. And so what Hebrews points us to more than anything else here is to the sympathy, the sympathy of Jesus. Look at Jesus' heart. We read that he's a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. During, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. That's a tender heart. That's a gentle heart. That's a willing heart. That's a heart that's willing to suffer for those whom he loves. The heart of Jesus is a heart that can cry out to the Father with loud cries and tears. A heart that's willing to break. A heart that's willing to suffer for us and for our salvation. Jesus' heart of sympathy for you and your suffering. Sympathy for those Jewish followers of Jesus to whom this letter was written. Jesus' sympathy as he wipes every tear from your eyes and as he suffers with you and for you. There is a price to sympathy. Um, and for Jesus, that 
That cost him. His sympathy cost him everything. He died of love. He died of sympathy. A number of years back, uh, Corinne Pertil did uh, 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 or reported on some new research confirming that in the words of the article, quote, being a good parent will physiologically destroy you. Congratulations, parents. Um, the researchers had surveyed 247 pairs of parents and their adolescent children on how often and what degree the parents could understand their children's feelings and respond with appropriate concern. And so they, then they took blood samples. And empathetic parents and their children were all well off, much better off psychologically, had much better emotional health, but physically, it was a different story. Um, the, the children with empathetic parents um, were doing great physiologically, but the good parents who were empathetic actually had astronomical levels of stress hormones because they were constantly denying their own needs in order to take care of their kid, uh, you know, in order to be empathetic. Uh, empathy requires us to push those feelings aside for someone else's sake, it, it, and it's linked to increased stress, higher rates of inflammation. Good parents, congratulations, you know. Uh, you know, and so you forgo things like sleep and exercise and other activities that could mitigate the stress of caregiving. And so the theological implications are profound. Um, when we look at Jesus, the notion that God's love necessarily takes a toll on the one doing the loving can be unpleasant, but it resonates greatly with the gospel. It stands as a reproof to anyone who might be tempted to scrub the blood off of Christianity because the deeper the empathy, the more severe the bodily impact. Jesus' sympathy sent him to the cross. His sympathy cost him dearly. Jesus died of sympathy. Jesus died of love. And the Father also suffered immensely in handing over his only Son. We forget the Father's willful suffering and giving up Jesus to gain the thing he wanted most, which is you. When you realize that we're facing our own weaknesses head on, realize that Jesus has been there too. We read here that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Jesus had weaknesses too. Don't, don't believe the lie that Jesus had no weaknesses. He had no sin, but he certainly had human weaknesses. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Don't tell me he didn't feel hungry, uh, you know? And, and is it a sin to feel hungry? No, but it is a weakness. He knew. He experienced the temptation to eat. He experienced tortuous hunger and the knowledge that releases but one small meal away, and he could, he could miracle up a meal in a second. He knew temptation. And he can empathize. I read about a, a married couple, uh, Saul and Pilar Cruz, who uh, founded a ministry in Mexico City right, at the, right, right next to a giant garbage dump in which the poorest of the poor would scavenge daily for, for food. And uh, starting a church, it had its, its challenges. Um, in particular, people had trouble trusting Saul's leadership because he was a brilliant thinker and a strategist, but he seemed kind of aloof um, and uh, didn't seem like he was really willing to plunge into the pain and the poverty of his neighborhood. But 
it changed one Sunday morning during church as they were all worshiping God. Someone burst into their worship service with a frantic need because the local sewage pipeline had started leaking into the neighborhood and the, the street outside was being flooded with raw sewage. And as it continued to gush, the street was on the very verge of collapse. The crisis threatened to, to sweep away dozens of people's homes. And to make matters worse, the city reported that they would get to it in three days. Saul and a local engineer immediately broke up the worship service and organized uh, the onlookers and the church members to stop traffic from coming into the neighborhood. They started making sandbags to block the flow of sewage, and they worked frantically for 15 hours. And by 3 o'clock the next morning, they had finally stopped the flow of sewage into the neighborhood. It was cold out. It was drizzling. Saul was shivering. He was exhausted. He was covered with mud and with raw sewage. His hair was matted with green stuff. It was disgusting. And his church members and he emerged from the pit and they walked back to the church and some of the women had heated up water so that the volunteers could, could wash off some of the filth in the sewage. And as they gathered together, Saul started to cry. And he just said, I'm sorry, but I need to pray. I need to thank God because he just saved us. He just saved you. He just saved me. Would you mind if we pray? And then Saul put out his hands as they all clasped their dirty hands together and knelt to pray. And by the time they had finished praying, Saul had earned their trust, becoming their leader as well as their friend. Later on, he would admit people needed to see the real me, uh, needed to know that I cared for them. They need to know that we're ready to put our life on edge for them. Jesus, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, moved into our world walking into our garbage dump and plunging into our cesspool of raw sewage, into our suffering. God is not aloof. Jesus put his life on edge for us, descending into the mud and sewage of this world. He faced real temptations. He experienced real weakness as an incarnate human being, God in the flesh. Jesus has been there. He has been in the garbage dump. He has wallowed in the sewer. He has taken the abuse. Whatever you're going through, he has been there. He understands, and he sees you, and he sees you with eyes of tenderness and sympathy. He's therefore able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's shown himself to be trustworthy. He's given us his sympathy. Look at Jesus. Look at his heart for you and embrace the freedom of knowing his love. There's a freedom and a boldness that comes when you know that you are safely in the arms of Jesus. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence, confidence, so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, religion says I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. The gospel says I messed up. I need to call my dad. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In October of 2011, Jessica Buchanan had been working on a demining project with the Danish Refugee Council, and she was kidnapped by Somali militants. And attempts by the council to enlist local Somali elders and traditional leaders to assist in, in freeing her were unsuccessful, and the militants even refused an offer of $1.5 million ransom money. 
Buchanan's health was declining rapidly. She was facing the reality that she might be facing death. Uh, amongst her first thoughts when kidnapped was that it was too soon to die without having children, without saying goodbye to her loved ones. Her thoughts went to her young husband who would have to go through life on his own without her. Um, days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. Jesse's condition was rapidly declining. And early on the 25th of January, 2012, uh, two dozen Navy SEALs parachuted from a C-130 Hercules two miles north of the Somali town of Adado, where the militants were holding Jessica. And the SEALs then traveled by foot from their drop zone. They attacked the compound. They engaged the gunmen. And after freeing Jesse, they turned to her, and here's what happened in her own words. She said, at that point, this group of men who've risked their lives for me already asked me to lie down on the ground because they're concerned there might be more armed threats out there. And they make a circle around me, and then they all lie down on top of me in order to protect me. And we lie like that until the Hawk helicopters come in. Literally, they were shielding her body with their own. Any bullet that entered that compound would go through one of those men willingly and on purpose instead of touching her. They were giving their lives for her salvation. They were communicating to Jesse that each one of them was willing to take a bullet for her. Every one of them was willing to die so that she could live. They surrounded her and laid their bodies on top of her in order to protect and guard her life, that her life might continue and indeed might flourish. In our tears, in our sorrow, in our pain, we sometimes wonder, Jesus, where are you? When he's lying right there on top of us. He's already taken a bullet for us. He's already gone to the cross. And the bullet that he took was far worse than, than molded lead. The bullet he took for us was far more lethal, with far more damaging consequences. And he took it for you by the Father's will, with his willingness. He did it on purpose because of the sympathy that Jesus feels for you right now. He would rather take that bullet and let it hit you. His love has shielded you so that you can live. Let's pray.